11. B1. But we can at least exact that there shall be an inquiry, a stay, and more often than not that alone would suffice to solve the difficulty without the application of definite law. It is just up to that point that the United States should at this stage be ready to commit herself in the General Council of Conciliation, namely, to say this, we shall throw our weight against any power that refuses to give civilization an opportunity at least of examining and finding out what the facts of the dispute are. After due examination we may reserve the right to withdraw from any further interference between such power and its antagonist, but, at least, we pledge ourselves to secure that by throwing the weight of such non-military influence as we may have onto the side of the weaker, that is the point at which a new society of nations would begin, as it is the point at which a society of individuals has begun, and it is for the purpose of giving effect to her undertaking in that one regard that America should become the center of a definite organization of that world state which has already cut athwart all frontiers and traversed all seas. It is not easy without apparent hyperbole to write of the service which America would thus render to mankind. She would have discovered a new sanction for human justice, would have made human society a reality. She would have done something immeasurably greater, immeasurably more beneficent than any of the conquests recorded in the long story of man's mostly futile struggles. The democracy of America would have done something which the despots and the conquerors of all time, from Alexander and Caesar to Napoleon and the Kaiser, have found to be impossible, dangerous as I believe national vanity to be, America would, I think, find in the pride of this achievement this American leadership of the human race a glory that would not be vain, a world victory which the world would welcome, Sir Christopher C.R. Radio C.K., by John E. D. through the thought of the fight we could dimly see, as ever the flame from the big guns flashed, that Craddock was doomed, yet his men and he, with their plates shot to junk, and their turrets smashed, their ship heeled over, her funnels gone, were fearlessly, doggedly fighting on, outspeeded, outmetalled, outranged, outshot by heavier guns, they were not outthought, those men with the age-old British phlegm, that has conquered and held the seas for them, and the courage that causes the death-struck man to arise on his mangled stumps and try, with one last shot from his heated gun, to score him ere his spirit fly, then sink in the welter of red, and die with the sighting squint fixed on his dead, glazed I accepted death as part of the plan, so the guns belched flame till the fight had run into night, and now, in the distance dim, we could see, by the flashes, the dull, dark loom of their hull, as it bore toward the port of doom, away on the water's misty rim Craddock and his few hundred men, never, in time, to be seen again, while into the darkness their great shells streamed, Little the valiant Germans dreamed that Craddock was teaching them how to go when the fate their daring, itself, had sealed, waiting, as yet, or the ocean's verge, to their eyes undaunted would stand revealed, and, snared by a swifter, stronger foe, outclassed, outmetalled, outranged, outshot by heavier guns, but not outthought, they, too, would sink in the sheltering surge. Battle of the Suez Canal A first-hand account of the unsuccessful Turkish invasion from the London Times. February 19, 1915. ISMAILA. February 10. Though skirmishing had taken place between the enemy's reconnoitering parties and our outposts during the latter part of January, the main attack was not developed until February 2, when the enemy began to move toward the Ismailia ferry. They met a reconnoitering party of Indian troops of all arms and a desultory engagement ensued, 
to which a violent sandstorm put a sudden end about three o'clock in the afternoon. The main attacking force pushed forward toward its destination after nightfall, from 25 to 30 galvanized iron pontoon boats, seven and a half meters in length, which had been dragged in carts across the desert, were hauled by hand toward the water, with one or two rafts made of kerosene tins in a wooden frame. All was ready for the attack. The first warning of the enemy's approach was given by a sentry of a mountain battery, who heard, to him, an unknown tongue across the water. The noise soon increased. It would seem that Mujahideen, holy warriors, said to be mostly old Tripoli fighters accompanied the pontoon section and regulars of the 75th Regiment. For loud exhortations often in Arabic of, brothers die for the faith, we can die but once, betrayed the enthusiastic irregular. The Egyptians wait till the Turks were pushing their boats into the water, then the Maxims attached to the battery suddenly spoke and the guns opened with case at point-blank range at the men and boats crowded under the steep bank opposite them. Immediately, a violent fire broke out on both sides of the canal, the enemy replying to the rifles and machine gun fire and the battery on our bank. Around the guns it was impossible to stand up, but the gunners stuck to the work, inflicting terrible punishment. A little torpedo boat with a crew of 13 patrolling the canal dashed up and landed a party of four officers and men to the south of Tushun, who climbed up the eastern bank and found themselves in a Turkish trench, and escaped by a miracle with the news. Promptly the midget dashed in between the fires and enfiladed the eastern bank amid a hail of bullets, and destroyed several pontoon boats lying and launched on the bank. It continued to harass the enemy, though two officers and two men were wounded, as the dark, Cloudy night lightened toward dawn fresh forces came into action. The Turks, who occupied the outer, or day, line of the Tushun post, advanced, covered by artillery, against the Indian troops holding the inner, or night, position, while an Arab regiment advanced against the Indian troops at the Serapium post. The warships on the canal and lake joined in the fray. The enemy brought some six batteries of field guns into action from the slopes west of Kataib al Shells admirably fused made fine practice at all the visible targets, but failed to find the battery above mentioned, which, with some help from a detachment of infantry, beat down the fire of the riflemen on the opposite bank and inflicted heavy losses on the hostile supports advancing toward the canal. A chance salvo wounded four men of the battery, but it ran more risk from a party of about twenty of the enemy who had crossed the canal in the dark and sniped the gunners from the rear till they were finally rounded up by the Indian cavalry and compelled to surrender. Supported by land naval artillery the Indian troops took the offensive. The Serapium garrison, which had stopped the enemy three quarters of a mile from the position, cleared its front, and the Tushung garrison by a brilliant counter-attack drove the enemy back. Two battalions of Anatolians of the 28th Regiment were thrown vainly into the fight. Our artillery gave them no chance, and by 3.30 in the afternoon a third of the enemy, with the exception of a force that lay hid in bushy hollows on the east bank between the two posts, were in full retreat, leaving many dead, a large proportion of whom had been killed by shrapnel. Meanwhile the warships on the lake had been in action. A salvo from a battleship woke up Ismailia early and crowds of soldiers and some civilians climbed every available sandhill to see what was doing till the Turkish guns sent shells sufficiently near to convince them that it was safer to watch from cover. A husband and wife took a carriage and drove along the lakefront, much peppered by shells, till near the old French hospital, when they realized the danger and suddenly whisked around and drove back full gallop to Ismailia, but the enemy's fire did more than startle, 
at about 11 in the morning two 6-inch shells hit the hardinge near the southern entrance of the lake. The first damaged the funnel and the second burst inboard. Pilot crew, a gallant old merchant seaman, refused to go below when the firing opened and lost a leg. Nine others were wounded. One or two merchantmen were hit, but no lives were lost. A British gunboat was struck. Then came a dramatic duel between the Turkish big gun or guns and a warship. The Turks fired just over and then just short of 9.000 yards. The warship sent in a salvo of more 6-inch shells than had been fired that day. During the morning the enemy moved toward Ismailia Ferry. The infantry used the ground well, digging shelter pits as they advanced, and were covered by a well-served battery. An officer, apparently a German, exposed himself with the greatest daring, and watchers were interested to see a yellow pie dog, which also escaped. Running about the advancing line, our artillery shot admirably and kept the enemy from coming within 1.000 yards of the Indian outposts. In the afternoon the demonstration for it was no more ceased but for a few shells fired as a nightcap. During the dark night that followed some of the enemy approached the outpost line of the ferry position with a dog, but nothing happened, and they found them gone. At the same time as the fighting ceased at the ferry it died down at Alcantara. There the Turks. After a plucky night attack, came to grief on our wire entanglements. Another attempt to advance from the southeast was forced back by an advance of the Indian troops. The attack, during which it was necessary to advance on a narrow front over ground often marshy with recent inundations against our strong position, never had a chance. Indeed, the enemy was only engaged with our outpost line. Late in the afternoon of the 3D there was sniping from the east bank between Tushwan and Sarapum and a man was killed in the tops of a British battleship. Next morning the sniping was renewed, and the Indian troops, moving out to search the ground, found several hundred of the enemy in the hollow previously mentioned. During the fighting some of the enemy, either by accident or design, held up their hands, while others fired on the Punjabis, who were advancing to take the surrender, and killed a British officer. A sharp fight with the cold steel followed, and a British officer killed a Turkish officer with a sword thrust in single combat. The body of a German officer with a white flag was afterward found here, but there is no proof that the white flag was used. Finally all the enemy were killed, captured, or put to flight. With this the fighting ended, and the subsequent operations were confined to rounding up prisoners and to the capture of a considerable amount of military material left behind. The Turks who departed with their guns and baggage during the night of the 3D still seemed to be moving eastward. So ended the Battle of the Suez Canal. Our losses have been amazingly small, totaling about 111 killed and wounded. Illustration, showing the Turkish points of concentration in Palestine and the principal routes leading thence to the Suez Canal. The intervening desert peninsula of Sinai constitutes a formidable obstacle to an invading force. Inset is a map of the Ottoman Empire showing in the northeast the Caucasus, where the Turks were routed by the Russians, who later advanced on Erzurum and Tabriz. The British expedition in the Persian Gulf region occupied Basra and was on February 1, 1915, at Kurna, the point of confluence of the Tigris and Euphrates. Our opponents have probably lost nearly 3.000 men. The Indian troops bore the brunt of the fighting and were well supported by the British and French warships and by the Egyptian troops. The Turks fought bravely and their artillery shot well if unluckily, but the intentions of the higher command are still a puzzle to British officers. 
Did Jamal Pasha intend to try to break through our position under cover of demonstrations along a front over 90 miles in length with a total force, perhaps, of 25.000 men? Or was he attempting a reconnaissance in force? If the former is the case, he must have had a low idea of British leadership or an amazing belief in the readiness and ability of sympathizers in Egypt to support the Turk. Certainly he was misinformed as to our positions, and on the 4th we buried on the eastern bank the bodies of two men, apparently Syrians or Egyptians, who were found with their hands tied and their eyes bandaged. Probably they were guides who had been summarily killed, having unwittingly led the enemy astray. If, on the other hand, Jamal Pasha was attempting a reconnaissance, it was a costly business and gave General Wilson a very handsome victory. Till the last week of January there had been some doubt as to the road by which the Ottoman commander-in-chief in Syria intended to advance on the canal. Before the end of the month it was quite clear that what was then believed to be the Turkish advanced guard, having marched with admirable rapidity from Beersheba via Al-Ajna, Jalidni, and Jifafa, was concentrating in the valleys just east of Kateb al-Kale, a group of hills lying about 10 miles east of the canal, where it enters Lake Timsa. A smaller column detached from this force was sighted in the hills east of the Smailia Ferry. Smaller bodies had appeared in the neighborhood of El Contar and between Suez and the Bitter Lakes. The attacks on our advanced posts at El Contar on the night of January 26th and 27th, and at Qudri, near Suez, on the following night, were beaten off. Hostile guns fired occasional shells, while our warships returned the compliment at any hostile column that seemed to offer a good target and our aeroplanes dropped bombs when they had the chance, but in general the enemy kept a long distance off and was tantalizing. Our launches and boats, which were constantly patrolling the canal, could see him methodically entrenching just out of range of the naval guns. By the night of February 1st the enemy had prepared his plan of attack. To judge both from his movements during the next two days and the documents found on prisoners and slain, it was proposed to attack Alcantara while making a demonstration at El Ferdin, further south, and prevent reinforcements at the first name post. The demonstration at Ismailia Ferry by the right wing of the Kataib Al-Kale force which had been partly refused till then in order to prevent a counter-attack from the ferry, was designed to occupy the attention of the Ismailia garrison, while the main attack was delivered between the Tushwan post, eight miles south of Ismailia, and the Sarapum post. Some three miles further south, E. Shreve Bay's highly irregular force in the meantime was to demonstrate near Suez. The selection of the Tushwim and Surapum section as the principal objective was dictated both by the consideration that success here would bring the Turks a few miles from Ismailia, and by the information received from patrols that the west bank of the canal between the posts, both of which may be described as bridgeheads, were unoccupied by our troops. The west bank between the posts is steep and marked by a long, narrow belt of trees, the east bank also falls steeply to the canal, but behind it are numerous hollows, full of brushwood, which give good cover, here the enemy's advanced parties established themselves and entrenched before the main attack was delivered, a full-fledged socialist state while Germany's trade and credit are holding their breath by J. Lawrence Lachlan from the New York Times, March 9, 1915, Professor Lachlan who makes the following remarkable study of the German financial emergency, was lecturer on political economy in Berlin on the invitation of the Prussian Culture Ministerium in 1906, and since 1892 has been head of the Department of Political Economy in the University of Chicago.
He is acknowledged to be one of the foremost American economists and the views here expressed are based on wide information. In a great financial emergency conditions are immediately registered in the monetary and credit mechanism. Although the German government and the Reichsbank had obviously been preparing for war long before, as soon as mobilization was ordered there was a currency panic. The private banks stopped payment in gold. Crowds then besieged the Reichsbank in order to get its notes converted into gold. Then the Banking Act was suspended, so that the Reichsbank and private banks were freed from the obligation to give out gold for notes. At once all notes went to a discount in the shops as compared with gold. Thereupon, in summary fashion, the military governor of Berlin declared the notes to be a full illegal tender and announced that any shop refusing to take them at par would be punished by confiscation of goods. In Germany, as is well known, the main currency is supplied by the Reichsbank, covered by at least 33.13% in gold or silver, and the remaining two-thirds by commercial paper. Immediately after the outbreak of war there was a prodigious increase of loans at the Reichsbank, in consequence of which borrowers receive notes or deposit accounts. Usually transactions are carried through by use of notes, and not by checks, as with us. On July 23, 1914, the notes stood at area code 472-500-000, deposits at area code 236-000-000, discounted bills and advances at area code 200-000-000. On August 31st notes had increased to a 1, area code 058-500-000, deposits to area code 610-000-000, discounts and advances to a 1, area code 113-500-000. By October this amount was lowered to about area code 750-000-000. On the latter date the specie reserve stood at area code 409-500-000, or more than the legal one-third. Loans had been increased 556%. Notes 223%, and deposits 258%. In short. Area code 586-000-000 of notes had been issued beyond the amount required in normal times. July 23. Clearly this additional amount was not required by an increased exchange of goods, but by those persons whose resources were tied up and who needed a means of payment. The same was true of the large increase of deposits which resulted from the larger loans. A liberal policy of discounting was followed by which loans were given on the basis of securities or stocks of goods on hand. That island non-negotiable assets were converted into a means of payment either in the form of notes or deposit credits. At this juncture there was created a currency something after the fashion of the Aldrich Real and emergency notes in this country. War credit banks were established by law to issue notes Darlens Gas and China in denominations of 10, 15, 20 and 50 marks as loans on stocks and trade and securities of all kinds, and were charged 612%. Interest. The goods on which these notes could be issued were not removed, but stamped with a government seal. While not a legal tender, the notes were receivable at all imperial agencies. On securities classed at the Reichsbank as Class I loans could be made up to 60% of their value as of July 31st, as Class II, 40%. On the other German securities bearing a fixed rate of return, 50%. On other German securities bearing a varying rate of return, 40%. On Russian securities, a lower percentage. These institutions, therefore, 
took up some of the burden that would otherwise have fallen on the loan item of the rights bank. Hence the rights bank account does not show the whole situation. To this point the methods followed were much the same as in London. Then came unusual happenings. In London for a few days the banks had wavered as to maintaining gold payments, but only temporarily. In Berlin drastic measures were undertaken to accumulate gold in the Reichsbank. Vienna reports it to be well known that Germany had been for 18 months before straining every nerve to obtain gold. Whatever sums of gold were included in the so-called war chest in Spandau said to be area code 30000000 were also deposited with the Reichsbank. Gold was even smuggled across the borders of Holland on the persons of spies. Urgent demands were made upon the people to turn in gold from patriotic motives. In this way over area code 400000000 of gold was gathered by July 1914, and by the end of the year, after five months of war, it had risen to area code 523000000. Was Germany to maintain gold payments as well as Great Britain? Evidently not. Gold was not given for notes on presentation. For purposes of exchanging goods the notes were in excess. Inconvertible. They must go to a discount with gold or with the money of outside countries using gold. But in order to get imports from other nations, like Holland, Scandinavia, and Denmark, Germany must either send goods, or gold, or securities. German industries, except those making war supplies, were not producing over 25% of capacity, and many were closed, the Siemens Schuckert works, even before the Landsturm was called out, lost 40%, of their men on mobilization, the Humboldt Steel Works, near Cologne, employing 4.000 men, were closed early in August, as were nearly all the great iron works in the district between Dusseldorf and Duisburg, probably 50-75%, to 75% of the workers were called to the colors, The skilled artisans were in the army or in munition factories, the railways were in the hands of the military, and the merchant marine was shut up in home or foreign ports. There were said to be 1.500 idle ships in Hamburg alone. Few goods could be exported. Gold was refused for export. Of course, a serious liquidation in foreign securities had been going on long before the war. Some foreign securities must have still remained, however that may be. A claim to funds in Germany i.e. a bill drawn on Germany was not redeemable in gold, and it fell in price. In normal times a bill could not fall below the shipping point in gold. Par with us for 4 marks is 95.14 cents in gold, but, since gold could not be sent, exchange on Germany could fall to any figure, set only by a declining demand. Already bills on Germany have been quoted in New York at 82 showing a depreciation of German money in the international field of about 13%. Likewise, as early as the first week of September, the Reichsbank notes were reported at a discount of 20%, and as practically non-negotiable in a neighboring country like Holland, the inevitable consequence of a depreciated currency must be a rise of prices, usually greater than the actual percentage of depreciation. To meet this situation there came a device possible in no other commercial country. The government fixed prices at which goods could be sold. This medieval device could be enforced only in a land where such state interference had been habitual, and, of course, could give to the notes the fictitious purchasing power only inside the country. After the Christian science fashion, one had only to believe the notes were of value to make them so, but in the cold world outside German jurisdiction their value would be gauged by the chances of getting gold for them. Here, then, 
we find Germany in all the mazes of our ancient, green backism, but still in possession of a large stock of gold. As soon as the war ends she may be able to return to gold payments at an early date very much as did France after the ordeal of the Franco-Prussian War of 1870-1871. In the present war conditions, however, largely cut off from other countries, except some small trade with Switzerland, Holland, Denmark, and the like, all ordinary relations which would influence German credit and industry must be counted out. There is no comparison of her prices and money with those of other countries in a free market, or with even a limited transportation of exports and imports. All commercial measurements are suspended for the time. Trade and credit are holding their breath. How long can they do it? Germany may have food enough, but how long can the stoppage of industry go on? Moreover, attention must be called to one momentous thing. We are seeing today, under military law, the greatest experiment in socialism ever witnessed. All wealth, income, industry, capital, and labor are in the direct control and use of a military state. Food, everything, may be taken and distributed in common. I think never before in history have we had such a gigantic, full-fledged illustration of socialism in actual operation. In the meanwhile, even though food may be provided, the reduction of industry in general has cut incomes right and left. That island fewer goods are produced and exchanged. But goods are the basis of all credit. The less the goods exchanged, the less the credit operations. Nevertheless, the extraordinary issues of banknotes, the increase of deposits, as a result of quintupling the loans, means that former commitments in goods and securities cannot be liquidated. That island the enormous increase of bank liabilities, to a considerable and unknown percentage, is not supported by liquid assets. These assets are, can't, will they keep sweet? There is no new business, no foreign trade, sufficient to take up old obligations and renew those which are impayable. Lessened incomes mean lessened consumption and lessened demand for goods. Hence the credit system is based on an uncertain and insecure foundation, dependent wholly upon contingencies far in the future which may, or may not, take the non-liquid assets out of cold storage and give them their original value. Moreover, Apart from definite destruction of wealth and capital in the war which must be enormous, as represented by the national loans the losses from not doing business in all main industries during the whole period of the war except in making war supplies must be very great, as it affects the income and expenditure of the working classes, it may be roughly measured by the great numbers of unemployed, if they are used on public works, their income is made up from taxes on the wealth of others, luxuries will disappear, and not be produced or imported. Incomes expressed in goods, or material satisfactions, have been diminished which is of no serious consequence. If they cover the minimum of actual subsistence, the prolongation of the war will, then, depend on the ability to provide the supplies for war. The need for a medium of exchange is oversupplied. The lack is in the goods to be exchanged. The enormous extension of German note issues does not, and cannot, diminish. In this country the expansion of credit and money immediately after the war manifested by the issue of clearing house certificates and emergency banknotes has been cleared away by liquidation. In Germany the can't assets behind the depreciated currency cannot be liquidated until the end of the war, and their worth at that time will depend much on the future course of the war and the terms of peace. If German territory should be overrun and the tangible forms of capital in factories and fixed capital be destroyed, much of the liquidation might be indefinitely prolonged. Whatever a foreign trade is permanently lost would also increase the difficulties. In a great financial emergency nearly every country has, 
at one time or another, been tempted to confuse the monetary with the fiscal functions of the treasury. To borrow by the issue of money seems to have a seductive charm hard to resist. Lloyd George established a new precedent for Great Britain by issuing nearly area code 2000000000 of government currency notes. But this was done to provide notes for the public instead of coin L1 and 10s, and made unnecessary any emergency issues by the Bank of England, and a large gold fund has been accumulated behind them so that they are convertible. In Germany it does not seem likely that the Treasury notes will be largely used having increased from area code 16500000 to about area code 2000000000 as a means of borrowing. Since the new loans are being issued in terms of longer maturities, J. Lawrence Lachlan, Letters from Wives by Cable to the New York Tribune, London, March 8th, Edward Page Gaston, an American businessman long resident in London, has just returned from Belgium, and brought with him many sad and touching relics of the battlefields in that distressful country, chiefly from the neighborhood of Moans. These pathetic memorials include letters from wives, sweethearts, and friends at home and letters written by soldiers now dead and never posted. Turning these letters over, one comes across such an expression as this, I congratulate you on your promotion. It seems too good to be true. Goodbye and God bless you. Dear, God keep you in health and bring you safely back. Alas, the soldier who got that letter came back no way at all to his sweetheart or his friends. If you don't come back, what shall I do? Is the cry that comes from another woman's heart and he did not come back. Mr. Gaston is going to put himself into communication with the War Office with regard to the fate of the relics, and as far as possible, they will be sent to the rightful owners. War Children. Special Cable to the New York Times. Paris. February 24th. Professor Pinard of the Academy of Medicine contributes an article to the man showing that war children are stronger and healthier than their predecessors, and that France is rapidly repairing her battle losses. An analysis of the Paris statistics for the last six months reveals a diminution of the death rate among mothers and children and a decrease in the number of children born dead. Dr. Pinard further asserts that an extensive comparison of living children with those born earlier shows that the average weight of war babies is considerably higher than it used to be. This he considers due to the giving of natural instead of artificial nourishment by the mothers in consequence of the more serious attitude they take to their duty to the state. This, says the professor is one more instance of the spirit of regeneration animating France. No premature peace for Russia proceedings at opening of the Duma. Petrograd. February 9, 1915 from the London Times. Petrograd. February 9. The main impression left upon all who attended today's proceedings in the Duma may be summed up in a few words. The war has not shaken the determination of the Russian people to carry through the struggle to a victorious end. Practically the whole house had assembled the few vacant seats were due to death. Chiefly on the field of battle and the patriotic spirit permeating the proceedings was just as deeply emphasized as it was six months ago. The debates were several times interrupted by the singing of the national anthem. Thunders of applause greeted the speeches of the president, the premier, and the foreign minister, and the ovation to the British and French ambassadors was, if anything, warmer and more enthusiastic than on the previous occasion. I noticed that members, 